Well, good morning, church. How we doing? I'm Scott Weatherford. I'm so glad you guys are here. I thought about you all week as I've been out preparing for the next couple of series that we have coming up. I'm, I'm one of these guys, I, like we plan a year in advance. Isn't that crazy? But uh, we figured that God wants to change things. He can. And God's a God of preparation. Uh, nothing ever sneaks up on him. So I think he plans things out. So I think he wants us to plan things out. And everything we do uh, is because we love you guys. So we want to provide the best for you. And, and maybe with limited capacities, but the big old heart. So this week I was in Alabama, went down to film the next group material for the fall, which is called I Will. And I want you to remember this, okay? Because you're gonna hear this a lot. Your commitments define your life. What you're committed to defines your life. You're committed to a job, you're committed to a sports team, you're committed to your kids, you're committed to King Jesus. Your commitments define your life. And I wanna challenge you this fall to move from, well, I want to and I think I ought to, to I will. I will, because we exist to build lives that honor God all for Jesus. So I will do those things that God shapes me. So as I was thinking about that, I went back to the church I pastored in Alabama because my videographer is there. Dan is my videographer here, and Dan's got more to do than Dan ought to have done. In fact, Dan had pneumonia this week, and he's up here now contaminating us all. So we appreciate that, Dan. Thank you. Okay. But Dan's better, obviously. We really appreciate Dan. But I go back there. But while I'm there, I'm thinking about you because I love you. Now, there's a lot of people there that I love as well. But I just can't wait to see what God continues to do here in the Wimberley Valley. God loves Alabama, but God loves Texas better. Just saying, all right? So, uh, yeah, it's a little hotter here, but that's okay. Uh, Wimberley, he loves the best because we're a little slice of heaven, right? Even though it's hot as the other place right now. So it's, it's all good. Um, if you don't know why, then why bother? The first time I heard that axiom, that idiomatic phrase, it really altered the course of my leadership life. Because I'm an origins guy. I want to know why. Now, I was with my little granddaughter, Ivy, yesterday. Uh, Papa had to take her to get some donuts. It was a, absolutely a mission of love. And I said, baby, what kind of donuts? She said, I like pink donuts. And so we got some pink donuts and she just eats the tops of the donuts. And I think, you know, that ain't a bad diet. Just eat the donut tops. Of course, I think if you eat 25 donut tops, you probably wasted your efforts. But um, where's I going with this donut? Why did I take Ivy to the donut shop? Because I love her. And on the way there, she kept asking, why, Papa? Why this and why that and why? She's still trying to figure out that I'm her mama's daddy, but I belong to her, and that, Miss, that Gigi, Tara, is my wife and that we belong to each other. She's still trying to figure it out. And then I told her that Uncle Stan's coming next week, and she's never met Uncle Stan, which is an indictment to him. And uh, he's coming. I told her about it. He's my brother, and she sure didn't understand that. But she kept asking why. Do you ever ask Why? Do you just show up at stuff and go through motions, but do you ever ask why? Because if you don't know why, then why bother? Why bother? And as a leader, if I don't know why we're doing what we're doing, then why are we doing it? And what should we be doing if we don't know the why? Well, I'm going to give you the why of, of here, this church. We exist to build lives that honor God all for Jesus. And we do that by connecting, growing, serving, and sharing, which leads to a life of honor. 
But here's who we are. Listen to this. We are a Christ-centered, Holy Spirit-empowered, missionally-focused movement called the church. We're not a country club. We don't... Uh, do y'all remember Blockbuster Video? Do y'all remember that? The last one closed this week. It's kind of crazy. You had to be a member of Blockbuster to rent a video there. We're not a Blockbuster. We're not a Costco. We're not a Sam's. We're the movement of God. We are members like we're members of the body. Members of the body. And each one of us matter. And we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we're all centered all for Jesus. This is who we are. There's seasons in our life where, well, clarity happens. When things that are fuzzy become into focus and things that are not right are made clear about what should be right. The Greeks had a couple of ways of, of looking at life. The Greeks looked at life in, in time in a couple of different ways. They had, they had several words. You know, they had four words for love. They had two words for time. The words for time were this, chronos, which means the marking of time. That's where we get, you know, the words for a, a chronometer or a watch, that we wear a, a chronos device, a marking of minutes and hours and seconds and days. But then they had another word called kairos. And that kairos is when things became clear, when things became relevant, when things were altering and changing. When I like to say there was a thinning between heaven and earth and the divine becomes obvious. Many times in my life, I've had those Kairos moments when things would thin and things would become clear and God would make himself known to me. I can tell you about many, many, but one of such time happened in 1992, March the 2nd of 1992. I was two years old <laughs> or thereabouts. At that thinning moment, God revealed to something to me that would change the course of my leadership life, change the course of how we are to become and what we're to become and how God wants us to become as, a, as me as a leader and then as the churches that God has asked me to lead. Peter Drucker, the uh, famous leadership guru, said that three most difficult leadership jobs in the world are this, president of the United States. Now, y'all notice the presidents come into office usually with a dark head of hair, and they leave office with a gray head of hair or no hair, or perhaps no hair with hair that looks like they have hair. <laughs> it's kind of where I am right now. You're kind of ranging what you got because, you know, it's, it's going away. That's all right. President of a major college or university, pastor of a local church. And most pastors don't see that our job is, is leadership that we're supposed to lead you to be a Christ-centered, Holy Spirit-empowered, missionally-focused movement. In 1992, God showed me a passage of Scripture that would change my life. And I want to read it for you today because I'm praying that today we will experience a Kronos moment, a Kairos moment here in the middle of our Kronos moments, that we will have a thinning between heaven and earth and that we will find clarity in the things that may be convoluted. And we might see clearly what God wants us to become and how we can boldly move towards the direction God wants us to move as we live out the hope of the world. Let me read this. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. For the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell all who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor is come and with it the day of God's anger against his enemies. 
And to all who mourn in Israel, he'll give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praises to despair. In their righteousness, that's our righteousness, which we have none. Any righteousness we get comes from King Jesus. He gives us his righteousness when we trust in him. In their righteousness, they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for his glory. They will rebuild the ancient ruins, repairing cities long ago, destroyed long ago. They will revive them, though they've been deserted for many generations. Over the last three weeks, this is the fourth week, we've been talking about hope. Help the oppressed plead for the exploited. We looked at God's view of justice and that God is a God of justice. And God's justice is always met with his compassion. The first week we talked about compassion and how God does everything he does is out of mercy. And then he moves in justice and the moving in justice is in order to bring his shalom or his peace. And then we looked at God's solution last week and we all collectively discovered that it's us, it's the church. We are to be the hope of the world. Currently in North America, there are 46,000 parachurch organizations and non-government organizations, NGO. Why have they risen up? Because the church has refused to do what God has asked us to do as the church. So God raises up parachurch organizations, which are supposed to be complementary to the church, but many have become parasitical to the church. We are to be the hope of the world. We are the solution. We are plan A with no plan B. And today we're going to look at our response. What are we going to do? In 1992, I heard this passage of scripture. I read this passage of scripture. And so Tara and I started a new church, meeting in a mall in Victoria, Texas. And with that spirit of the sovereign Lord, the spirit to bind up the brokenhearted. I remember the day I was in the mega church as the, as the music minister sitting on stage. And I thought to myself, if this is church, I'm not going to do this the rest of my life. And so God sent us to build the lives of people. And I know this, this call of God has led me on a great adventure. It led me to the little town in South Texas. It led me after years there to Tallahassee, Florida. After years there, it led me to Canada, to Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Yesterday, Tara and I got to watch the Calgary Stampede Rodeo event on, on TV. It was really kind of cool. I'm not a rodeo guy. When I used to ride bulls, the bulls would just walk out and lay down. They'd just give up, okay? Too much to buck right there with this buckaroo. We, we led us to Calgary. Then it led us back to Alabama. Then it led us back here to you in Texas. And it hasn't changed to be the church of Jesus Christ that rescues the broken and cares for the marginalized that literally is the hope of the world. And see, this clear theology of hope, help the oppressed and plead for the exploited, will change our course of our lives. And I want to talk about theology. I want to just simplify it for you. Theology is not a fancy word. It just means thinking about God. That's all it means. A.W. Tozer, a theologian from the last century, said this, the most important thoughts you have are your thoughts about God. And they are indeed the most important thoughts. And God wants you to think about him clearly and to literally respond with our lives, Jesus, I'm yours, that we might be the hope of the world. So what I'd like to do is I'd like for us to take apart this passage of scripture and see what God himself is saying to us that we might have a clear theology about our response to him. 
Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for what you're going to do in us today in this Kairos moment. And I pray, oh God, that you'll clear up my thinking and my thought process. That I will say the things you all said. That, that Lord, even beyond that, I will be the man you want me to be. And I pray for these people in this room or perhaps watching online. That, Father, they will respond with their lives to you, King Jesus. Realizing the things they think about you. Realizing who they are in you changes everything about them. So thank you for what you want to say and what you want to do. We love you and we pray all of this in Christ Jesus' strong name. Amen. Amen. So go ahead and take out your Take the Weekend With You notes. You might want to jot some things down. Uh, while you're taking that out, let me remind you of our online resources. We have videos that go along with this with study guides for your group experience. You can use in your home. You can use personally. You can use with three or four people in a coffee shop. You can use it in your Sunday school class or in your group meetings. We provide those things for you because we love you. This, uh, this last week as I was recording all of those series for the I Will, we did seven of those, those extra talks that go along with the I Will uh, sermon series this fall. Also, I recorded all four of our next steps on video. So the step into membership, step with uh, spiritual growth, maturity, step up to ministry, and step out on mission with God, we put that on videotape because some of you will not go to what we do on Sunday mornings, and that's okay. So we're just going to come after you. We'll stop like spam emailing you and make you watch these videos. Some of you are very grateful for the videos I provide because you have trouble sleeping at night, so you put me on and you go right to sleep. So you're, you're welcome for that ministry. I have you people struggling with insomnia. That was supposed to be a joke, but I've told it so many times, it's no longer funny. Okay, but I also did uh, two videos for a hunting show. Any of y'all ever watch hunting shows? Raise your hand. Yeah, okay, that's all the guys, yeah. And we like to watch other people catch things and kill things. And, and then, then anybody watch the Food Channel? Yeah, we like to watch people eat things. That's right. So it's kind of, some of us like to watch both. If we could get a hunting channel that cooks it and eats it, that would be like awesome. Maybe why that's an idea for us in our retirement. But uh, I did two videos for a hunting show called Doe Nation. Yeah, uh, isn't that cute? And the only thing I'm getting tremendous royalties from this show, I think they're sending me a free hat. I think that's what I'm getting in remuneration for this. Uh, but it's all over Alabama. It's two redneck guys shooting footage of them hunting deer. Doesn't that sound enticing? Yeah, okay, anyway. But Papa Scott's at the end of it giving uh, scriptural guidance at the end of donation. So that was this week. Now let's turn our attention back to what we're supposed to be doing and let's talk about hope. Help the oppressed plead for the exploited. Getting our thinking right. Now, all during this series, you may have had some emotional responses. You've thought, man, this is just a lot. I mean, you're talking about slavery. You're talking about human trafficking. You're talking about oppression and exploitation. And, and now I'm just kind of overwhelmed. Well, I want to help you with some more being a little more overwhelmed, okay? The recent studies have been released about slavery in, in the world. And the last time I told you this, uh, I was looking at a study that was 10 years old, and it said there were 27 million slaves in the world. You remember me saying that? And some of y'all went, what? Well, the new study's out. There are now 40 million slaves in the world. 40 million. Now you say, wait, 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 Scott, what, what, what's a slave? A slave is anyone that this organization has determined is existing under substandard places in forced labor. Now, the worst place 
for slavery is North Korea. North Korea, the bellicose dictator there, uh, you can't trust those folks, uh, that, that government, not, not the North Korean people, but the government of North Korea, you can't trust them at all. And they're enslaving more people. Uh, some other places in the world, Eritrea, which is a country in Africa, uh, Somalia, another country in Africa, um, Burundi, another country in Africa. These are involving uh, very heavily enslaved. Some places in Eastern Europe as well. And you're going, uh, India is another great perpetrator of slavery. Uh, you're going, okay, yeah, that's great. But here in the United States, we don't have a problem with slavery. Wrong. 400,000 slaves in the United States right now. What? Most of them, get this, are through illegal immigration. Held in a shadow of economy. Why don't we want to lean into immigration reform? Because why would you want to get rid of a workforce you do not have to pay? Didn't we fight a war over that about 150 years ago? What's it like Abraham Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation and Juneteenth? And now we find ourselves right back because sin is regurgitated. The writer of Proverbs says this, as a dog returns to his vomit, so does a fool to his folly. And we're regurgitated. Now when I say all these things, you might have the inappropriate and effectual response of guilt. I've been thinking about guilt a lot. And I realize there's a difference between guilt and conviction. Guilt leads me to cover myself. When Adam and the woman were caught in the garden of sin, they felt shame and they felt guilt, so they hid from God. Conviction will lead me to repentance to God. Guilt will lead me to actions that are self-motivated to cover myself. And if I respond with guilt, I say, I'm safe and secure, and I'll act out of this guilt that becomes, uh, that, that I get because so many aren't, so I'm just gonna be, feel guilty and I'm gonna do this. No, 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 guilt is not a motivation. Conviction is the motivation. Or you say, well, I'm overwhelmed. There's so much pain and so much heartache in the world and so much loss, I'm stunned and I, I, I don't know what to do. I want you to write this down. It's the start that stops most of us. It's the start that stops most of us. When you know there's something that has to be done and you don't know what to do, so you just become totally overwhelmed. I get that. I know when I first started leaning into this hope of being the hope of the world, and I started getting convicted by God that the church ought to lean into this. And I started leading the churches I was leading to have an awareness of these things, an awareness of people, and awareness of loving people and caring for people. I just got found. It was just easier not to do it. One day I came home from, from the church office and I just had a messy day dealing with messy people, counseling and brokenness and just stupid front and center. And I know y'all think pastors never have to deal with that. I came home and I threw my jacket over the coat and I looked at Terry and I said, I just want to go to a sleepy First Baptist Church in a small town in the heart of Texas where I just have to preach a good sermon and just maybe visit sick every now and then. And she didn't even look up. She was cooking. She says, no, you don't. You know you want to run an outpost by the gates of hell. She's right. Being overwhelmed is okay. Staying overwhelmed 
is not okay. And knowing that we're moving together obliterates our being overwhelmed to being as confident that together we can do a great thing because we are a Christ-centered, Holy Spirit-empowered, missional focus called the church. Are we have apathy? Well, did Jesus say the poor would always be with us? What does it matter to me? All over the world, all over the world, I faced apathy. I remember in Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo, when people were living on less than a dollar a day, be invited to the presidential palace to meet with the second in command of the president and them not caring about their people. Living in opulence without caring. Dumb me, I said, would y'all would quit taking bribes and start being, and stop being corrupt and start caring for your people, you might see improvement. That ended our conversation. I was ushered out. <laughs> I'm glad I left with my life. Tara looked at me. She was in that meeting. She goes, do you just want to like kick up stuff? Do you want to get us killed? I said, well, we'll, we'll but die. We'll but die. If we don't go beyond these responses, then we have failed. And Isaiah 61 gives us the right motivation to say, these are the people we're going to love. We're going to move beyond the inadequate and ineffectual responses to the heart of God. And the theology of this will lead us to the kind of response that makes a difference in our world. So let's look at this and let's see what God is saying to us. The source of hope is King Jesus. Listen to what Isaiah said years before Christ was born. He was prophesying about the Messiah. And this is what he said. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of God's favor has come and with it the day of God's anger against their enemies. Would you agree with me? This world is not as it should be. Would you agree with that? There's brokenness. Would you agree with that? Okay, that's six of you. Would you agree with that? Okay, that's better. That's why Jesus came. Because this world is broken, because there's heartache and hurt and abandonment and slavery and abuse of women and children and a man, Jesus came. In fact, Jesus fulfilled this prophecy. In his hometown of Nazareth, Jesus was asked to speak in the synagogue. Why? Because Jesus was a rabbi. Jesus was known as a rabbi. He wore the prayer shawl. He was a rabbi. And he had followers with him. And they were following the rabbi. They didn't know that Jesus was the rabbi of rabbis. But he was the rabbi. And they asked him to come teach in the synagogue. And so as the Jewish custom, he sat down and taught them. In the Jewish tradition, rabbis would sit to teach. This is why. They would sit to teach to show that God had the authority, not the rabbi. And they sat to teach to draw a commonality between those who would listen. Not to talk down, but to talk with. And he opened the scroll of Isaiah, and he read it, and he rolled it up, and he said, this prophecy has fulfilled, been fulfilled in your hearing. I am the prophecy. 
And you know what this people of Nazareth did? Hallelujah, let's have a revival. No, they tried to stone him. They said, who are you? You're just nothing but a carpenter. Jesus was a tecton, a builder. He and his daddy had a big building company. They said, you're dismissive. And then even his mother and his brothers and sister tried to, to talk him out of doing this crazy thing, and they took him to stone him. But Jesus, it wasn't his time, so he slipped away from them. He said, Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. This is why he came. The world is not as it should be. And Jesus has come to make things right. Now, some of you, when I say that, so, well, preacher, you're kind of like talking like this is one world order theology. And you know what I want to say to you? One world order theology was made up by a guy on the internet who's right now wearing a tinfoil hat. You going to believe in that? There's no such thing as one world theology. There's one King Jesus, and one day he will come in glory and fix this mess. He is our hope. And the hope that Jesus brings is spiritual hope, that we could be reconciled with God. We, our sins could be forgiven, we can be made new, and we can have a relationship with the holy, loving, living God. You cannot be made right with God except through Jesus Christ. And he makes you right because he's died for your sins. Your greatest need is salvation and forgiveness of sin. And Jesus has done that for you. It's spiritual. But it's also emotional. He will heal your broken mind. Jesus said this to his followers in John chapter 14. Peace I give to you, not as the world gives I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be afraid. The number one need we have is peace. Have you ever wondered how you worry about things late at night that make no logical sense and they're always worse at night than any other time? Am I the only one like that? Tara and I ask each other every morning, how did you sleep? Why do we ask that? Because we love each other. And I want her to know that she has peace. When mama's at peace, nobody's at war. Now, when Papa ain't at peace, ain't nobody care. But peace, and it's emotional peace. Jesus comes to give us, but get this, he comes to give us relational peace that we might be in unity together. I talked to six pastors on Tuesday afternoon when I was driving from Atlanta to Montgomery. I talked to six pastors. All six of them were talking to me about disunity in their church. And that, my friend, is the tip of the iceberg. There's one thing in the universe God asks us to maintain. God maintains everything else but one thing, and that's unity. He says, maintain unity through the bond of peace. It's our responsibility to maintain unity. And we do it by watching our mouths and guarding our hearts. Yesterday, uh, I took Tara to one of the finest culinary establishment in the great state of Texas. We stopped at Whataburger <laughs> to get a chicken fajita taco. They have the best chicken fajita tacos. I want to tell you, Jesus is in that kitchen making them tacos. They are good. And if you get the grilled jalapenos on it, I mean, it'll, you better wear glasses because your tongue's going to slap your eyeballs out. That's how good <laughs> it is. And we stopped there. And so I ordered two. They only heard one. 
And so I had to have two because Miss Tara needed one too, right? I couldn't eat that taco in front of her. <laughs> so I pulled up to the third window and I was sitting at the third window. I noticed that on the window of Whataburger, I don't know if you've ever seen this, it has this, one nation under God, indivisible. Y'all ever notice that at Whataburger? Texas proud. You know, we pledge that, but we are not that. Oh yeah, we're under God, but we are divided. Jesus has come to bring us back. Listen to me. The government can't do it. They cannot legislate it. The church can. And Jesus can. That we would be the great unifiers by being the hope of the world. He comes to bring freedom physically, healing. Jesus is our savior. He's our sanctifier. He's our healer. And he's our coming king. He's all of those things. Last Sunday at this gathering here, we prayed for Keith Lauderdale, who was having a liver transplant. And his cousin, Ricky, and his other cousin, Sheila, as they were going to stand in. Sheila didn't have to go. Ricky got his liver. Sheila still got her liver. And now Keith has a piece of Ricky's liver. It's just confusing me. But we prayed for him. And we anointed with oil. And we prayed. We prayed for all three. And Wyatt, how's, how's Keith doing? Much better than the doctors at Pisces. Why? Because Jesus brings physical healing. The doctors, God used them. The prayers, God used that. But Jesus is the healer. And when he comes to bring things right as they should be, he is the hope. And we lean in to King Jesus that he might be our hope. And what we do as a church as a people, as individuals, has to be done in Jesus' name. There's no other reason. Jesus said this to us, and I want you to listen to this. I don't know if you know this is in here. John chapter 14, verse 12. I tell you the truth. When Jesus says, I tell you the truth, he means it. He means it. In the, in the King James, it says, verily, verily, I say unto thee. Does that sound more official? Verily, verily, I say unto thee. In other words, translate to Texas. I won't tell you the truth. I'll tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done. What? And even greater works. Because I go to the Father. What? Because we're Holy Spirit empowered, we have the authority of Jesus to literally beat back the darkness. I want to tell you something, y'all. I'm probably going to get fired for this, but here we go. I'm going to tell y'all when Jesus is coming back. Y'all ready? Some of y'all would. he's lost his mind. I want to tell you. Get your pencils out. Why don't you write it down? He's going to come back when the whole world hears the gospel. When every tribe, every tongue, every people group hears the gospel, Jesus is coming back. I want to tell you where we are with that. Now, when we talk about hear the gospel, it means there has to be a witness for Christ and, a, and the word of God in their language and a church that's been established, okay? 
That's the way missiologists look at reaching people groups. There are less than 3,000 people groups who still have not heard the gospel. We are down to under 1% of the world's population has now heard the gospel. Let's get it done. Wouldn't it be great for Jesus to come back? Wouldn't it be great to no longer have to worry about whether Social Security is going to be alive and well because Jesus is back? And that's the goal of God, that he might move in and for and through us, that we might be the hope of the world. Now, here's the intent of hope. Listen to what Jesus wants to do. To all who mourn in Israel, he'll give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. In their righteousness, they'll be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for his own glory. They will rebuild the ancient ruins, repairing cities destroyed long ago. They will revive them, though they've been deserted for many generations. Foreigners will be your servants. They will feed your flocks and plow your fields and tend your vineyards. And you will be called the priest of the Lord, ministers of our God. And you will feed on the treasures of the nation and boast in their riches. Instead of shame and dishonor, you will enjoy a double share of honor. And you will possess a double portion of prosperity in the Lord, in the land. And everlasting joy will be yours. Now listen to this. To heal hearts. Then there's so many broken hearts in the world today. And this little caveat said that foreigners will tend your field. What, what is this about? What foreigners will be your servants? What is, what is this about? Isaiah was prophesying to the day with the Jewish people who were so racist and isolated. He was saying that God's going to break that and we're going to be one family. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, you're going to be united into one movement. Wow. Could there be a day when I didn't identify a man by the color of his skin, but I identified him by the content of his character? To quote Martin Luther King Jr. Wow. And Jesus is saying this thing. The power of the symbolism here, oaks of righteousness, reached down deep into Jewish theology when there were trees in the garden you weren't supposed to eat of, and there was trees of righteousness planting by living waters found in Psalm 1, and when the, the oaks of righteousness found in Isaiah, to Jesus Christ our Lord being nailed to a tree that we might be redeemed. And he takes us on this adventure of theology, and it's all for his glory, that we might restore, we might rebuild, we might renew. And we're talking about rebuilding and renewing. Jesus is not Chip and Joanna Gaines. He is not a fixer-upper. He fixes people, not places. And when he fixes the people, the places follow. To return things to order. Now, the order will only be refilled by God in the eschaton. We will not experience that returning order until Jesus comes back in the glorious eschaton. Now, you said eschaton. What the heck is that? Is that a new Chevrolet? Yeah, I got me an eschaton. <laughs> no, that's the eternal reign of Christ when he comes back. Y'all worked that into a sentence this week. The eschaton of God. To provide blessings for us and for others. Prosperity, not the excess of cash, but the excess of peace. Wow. Prosperity, inheritance. In Romans 8, Paul, knowing the book of Isaiah from memory, writes in Romans 8, we are joint heirs with Jesus. 
security, that we're safe with Christ. I thought about that a lot this week. Our son, our oldest son, Caleb, he's been sick. And so he's been staying with us. And we've, I, we've loved him being there. Just loved him. And uh, he, he, got, he said Friday, he said, I want to go home. And I thought, you are home, son. And then we took him back to his place in Austin and we dropped him off. And there was so much security I had with my boy when I knew where my boy was. And God's saying, there's so much security with you when you know you belong to me and I've got you. I'm safe with you. Do you ever feel insecure with Jesus? Let's just be honest. Do you? Let me tell you something. That's right out of hell. That's Satan's foul, demonic breath breathing down your neck. Because Jesus holds you and no one can snatch you out of his hand. You can't even do it by being stupid. He holds you. And what's the last thing? Joy. I'm thinking, how can you help not be joyful when you've got prosperity? You've got abundance. You've got peace. You've got security. The joy of the Lord is my strength. And this is Jesus' intent, that we might be rescuers of people to bring them in. To bring them in. What is the result of hope? For I, the Lord, love justice, and I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully reward my people for their suffering and make an everlasting covenant with them. This everlasting covenant, I'm going to talk about that in a minute, but it's King Jesus. Their descendants will be recognized and honored among the, the nations. Everyone will realize that they are people the Lord has blessed. That means you. And then Isaiah kind of breaks into this happy dance. He, he says this, I am overwhelmed with joy. In the Lord, my God. Woo! Because he got this revelation from God. And he wrote it down for us to read. He said, I was overwhelmed with the joy of the Lord. For he has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me in robes of righteousness. And there's so much symbolism there, I won't go into it. I'm like a bridegroom in his wedding suit or a bride in her jewels. The sovereign Lord will show justice to the nations of the world Everyone will praise him. His righteousness will be like a garden in the spring, early spring with plants springing up everywhere. It's God's favor. I hear TV preachers talk about God's favor, God's favor, God's favor. You got you a new airplane. God's favor, I got you a new Cadillac. God's favor is I got you a new job. God's favor, you got a diamond ring that choke a racehorse. God's favor. That ain't God's favor. God's favor is that you belong to him. He loves you and you're saved by him and he lavishes his favor on you because you're his child. Period. Period. Why does Papa buy Ivy donuts because he loves her. Why does God give you his favor? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. And you're clothed in righteousness. And you're one nation, one people. It's seen, it's the hope of deliverance. And the hope is obvious. It's the everlasting covenant of King Jesus. 
Now, when you hear the word covenant, you go, what, what, what is that? Let me tell you what that is. Let me just kind of take you on a, tri- a trip through covenants. You see, God is a promise keeper. Hey, God says, I'm going to have a covenant relationship with you. Now, let me tell you what a covenant is. A covenant is God saying, I'm going to do this. Even if you don't do it, I'm going to do this. That's what a covenant is. So you trace the covenants through scripture, and it starts off with the Adamic covenant, or the covenant of Adam and Eve, Adam and the woman. And God says to them, you messed up. I'm putting you out of the garden, but I'm going to send you a redeemer. I'm going to restore things back to the garden. And it was the Adamic covenant. God made a promise. Go along, Noah, people of the earth, cuckoo for cocoa puffs. God decides he's going to make it rain and flood the earth and kill everybody but Noah and his kids. And so God does it. And at the end of it, God says to Noah, I'm going to make a covenant with you that I'm never going to do this again. Here's a rainbow to prove my covenant. I will not destroy the earth with water again. Noah, your people will go out and populate the earth. I'm making a covenant with you because I'm a redeemer. And then there's the Abrahamic covenant. That Abraham, a pagan, believed God and believed God counted to him as righteousness. And Abraham goes from being a pagan to being a believer. And God says, Abraham, because you believe me, I'm going to bless the world through you. And I'm going to send you a son. Even though you're old, even though your wife is barren, and this is impossible, I'm a God, and I don't even believe in impossible, God says. If you look at God's dictionary, impossible is not in it. And he says, I'm going to do this for you, and I'm going to bless the world through you. And that's the Abrahamic covenant. And through Abraham's seed came King Jesus. And then there's this Mosaic covenant. The people are caught into bondage and slavery in Egypt. And God sends Moses to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And then Moses takes them out into the wilderness and they experience the law, the Mosaic covenant of the law. And what the law did was point to them that you can't do this, you need a redeemer. It's the Mosaic covenant. Then the Davidic covenant, King David sitting on the throne of Israel. And God said, David, I'm gonna make sure there's a descendant of yours sitting on the throne forever and ever and ever. And Jesus is of the lineage of King David. And you take all those covenants Adamic, Noadic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and you throw them away because there's the new covenant of King Jesus. And on the night he's betrayed, he took a cup and he said, this covenant, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. I am the redeemer. I am the one you've been looking for. And that is why when we have communion here, which we'll have in a couple of weeks, we lift the cup and we say, to the king. To the king. Because it's King Jesus. He is the hope. An everlasting covenant, Isaiah said. And Jesus is him. You need a redeemer. And we have him. And that hope then causes our soul to be rejoicing and our spirits to be released. And we wear the garments of salvation. We're clothed in Christ and everything we do gives glory to God, period. So what now? We've learned of God's compassion and God's justice and God's solution. But what is our response? What do we do now? Let me give you some thoughts there. The first thing you should do and we should do and I should do is pray. 
Well, that sounds really passive, Scott. I should just pray? Yeah, let me tell you why. Because prayer makes you aware. Prayer is not passive at all. Prayer is getting your mind engaged that you might hear from our great God. When you pray, you're not informing God of anything. Oh, by the way, God, I need to let you know my aunt needs a new liver. No, God already knows. Or God, I'm a sinner. Yeah, he really knows that one. He knows all of that. But what prayer does is align my heart with God's heart. Prayer makes me aware. The great second century theologian Augustine said this, pray like everything depends upon God then move like everything depends upon you. Prepare. Learn. Lean in. Look around you. Be aware. Prepare. Be ready with a yes before Jesus asks. Uh, next month, we're going to Cuba where we're going to be training pastors. Y'all need to pray for us. Because Satan's going to try to do everything he can to derail this. Y'all need to pray for us. But why are we going there? We're going there to set a country on fire, to rebuild the ancient ruins, to reclaim broken people, to get the church to be the hope of the world. Because the, the Cuban government's not going to be the hope of the world. They're not even the hope of their people. But the church is. So we can prepare. We can we can go. This foyer into Cuba is just a, a first step into the Cuban life. I had a conversation. I've been trying to work out a deal with the theological seminary in Santiago de Cuba, which is led by a great friend of mine who's a theologian, and he wants to teach theology to pastors, theology to pastors, theology to pastors, and without any methodology, without any implementation, without how to do this. And the reason is he's a theologian. Y'all, I'm not a theologian. Y'all know that? I'm just a pig without a curl in my tail. Now, my brother, the theologian, he's, he's a curly tail pig. He's coming next week, all right? I'm just a practical guy. I'm a methods guy. My brother, who was in Santiago de Cuba, with my friend, who's a theologian, said to him, what we're doing is not enough. We need to get Scott involved. Now, I want to say this. When somebody says, we get Scott involved, you know what that means? Y'all going with me. Get your passport. Get your passport. I can't wait to see. Partner with peace. Planting and, and, and partnering and promoting unity and reconciliation. Equipping leaders, assisting the poor, caring for the sick, education of the future generations. And here's the last thing you do. You may not be able to go. You may not be able to give. But you can Surrender. You can say, Jesus, anytime, any place, anywhere, anyhow, I'm in. I'm yours. I'm yours. I don't know what this means, but let's go. Let's go. Let's go. I used to say to my kids when they were little, now I say to my grandkids, do you want to go on an adventure? You'll go on an adventure? And they never say, no, Papa, we don't want to go on a venture. They always say, yeah, where are we going? Where are we going? Do you want to go on an adventure? Where are we going? I don't know. Let's just go. Let's see where God takes us. You see, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me and it's upon you. It's upon us because we're the church of the living God. 
We are the Christ-centered, Holy Spirit-empowered, missionally-focused movement called the church. And there's a thinning. When the divine becomes obvious, it is called a kairos moment. And today, in this room, in this place, with you, God's people, we have the thinning between heaven and earth where we have to make a decision. Will we be like Isaiah and say, here am I, send me. And experience the joy of God. William Wilberforce, the great abolitionist of England, he said this as he brought the atrocities of slavery to light. He said this, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never again say you didn't know. Church, we can say, we can choose to not do anything about the oppressed and the broken and the hurting, but you can't say you didn't know because you now know. The question is, what will you do? What will you do? What will we do all for Jesus?